Hi, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to episode 85 of the Dangerous History Podcast. We've got a real cool show for you today, a conversation I recently had with Daniele Bolelli about Taoism history and other stuff that I think you all will enjoy. For those of you who don't know, Daniele is a writer, martial artist, university professor, and podcaster. He was born in Italy and currently lives in Los Angeles. He has two podcasts, The Drunken Taoist Podcast and History on Fire. He has written several books, including On the Warrior's Path, one that, by the way, I read and enjoyed for the first time many years ago. And his other books include 50 Things You're Not Supposed to Know, Religion, Create Your Own Religion, and he has a new one coming out in December of 2015 entitled Not Afraid, on fear, heartbreak, raising a baby girl, and cage fighting. So anyway, I'm very happy to present my conversation with Daniele Bellelli here for your listening enjoyment. Daniele Bolelli, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, man. Yeah, it's really cool to talk to you. Um, you are, I've got to say, something that seems kind of rare these days. You're an interesting guy. <laughs> you're an interesting person. So, um, that's you're you're the rare sort of person these days. Kind of the the Renaissance man who's not a super duper specialist. And I really really appreciate that. You know that that you're you're one of those people who understands that. There's connections to be had between lots of different fields of knowledge and skills and all that sort of Taoist stuff. So the first thing I wanted to ask you today was, how did you get to be like that? Was it a conscious decision to to be that sort of versatile Taoist person, or was it something that you just kind of started to do organically? I think I was uh, heavily influenced by, I'm guessing probably my father played a big influence because he was never a specialist in one thing. For the longest time, I could never even describe what he did for a living, because I was like, yeah, he does lectures about, you know, and half of the time I would have no idea what actually the details were, because one day he would be talking about art as if he's an art critic, and one day he would be organizing this thing that were in completely different fields, right? I mean, to give you an idea, he, for the longest time, he had this gig teaching in a master program in... Uh, in fashion and design, and he knows nothing about fashion and nothing about design. And incidentally, he does not—he does not have a master in any of those fields or in any field for that matter. And I was like, "How exactly did that happen?" You know, normally you you are a specialist in one field, and people call you because you are the specialist in that one thing. And with him, it was always what would happen is that they would call him because he would be the guy who could make connections that specialists in that one field could not. So he could connect the tiny little bit he would know about fashion and design and connect it to a much wider world that the specialist wouldn't do. And I was always, I mean, there was never like we sat down and talk about it in those terms, like this is a better way to approach life kind of thing. But I think seeing him operate that way had an influence on me. I think just the way my brain worked, it became, uh, yeah, why should I dedicate my life to a single field? I, why do I not just take the best from multiple fields to enrich my life? How about we flip the script compared to the norm? And then, you know, once I started reading about the whole idea of what 
sort of the Renaissance man is, uh, some Taoist concepts. It all fit in, but it was something that kind of grew organically for me. Okay, that that's cool. How how was your father able to do that? Were they just like laid back on formal degrees in in those cases? I mean, it seems like in a lot of cases today they won't even consider letting you have a job like that unless you know it's a prerequisite to have all sorts of formal qualifications. How do you get around that? I think for the most part it's still true, and uh, it was probably true for him as well. I think it's just there are always little exceptions here and there. So is that a very stable career path? No. Do I recommend it? No. Can you navigate in such a way that you do get gigs here and there that way? Well, if you get, uh, you can. It's just a matter of, uh, it's not likely and it doesn't happen often. I mean, like one of my first uh, teaching gigs in college, I ended up teaching for an Asian American studies department and I'm not Asian American, and I never took a course in Asian American studies, and I had an MA in an art-related field, and this was a UCLA where they absolutely want you to have a PhD to teach. So it was one of the things where it's like, am I going to get regular work doing that? No, I'm not. But I came up with a proposal that was sort of a student pleaser, and they badly needed more students. And so they thought, you know what, it's either this guy or nobody else can do this stuff. It's a weird enough proposal that, so, okay, fine, I guess we'll have you. And that's the, rather than be, I fit, uh, I have certain qualifications and so you'll hire me, it was more the, I fulfill a need that no one else can tackle, and so here I am. Now, again, in 90% of cases, you're going to have doors slammed in your face over and over, logically, because, as you say, there are prereqs that they are very strict about. But occasionally, you can uh, find the odd opening that doesn't seem to be there, but somehow you carve your way in. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran into some of that myself of, of just jobs that I knew for sure I could do perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And just being told, you know, you don't have the right degrees, so we don't care. <laughs> we we don't we don't care that you've already pretty much demonstrated you could do this job. We are just flat out not even going to consider you. Yeah. And that was just frustrating as hell. So it it's good to hear that there are still sometimes opportunities out there to, you know, get into places without all the formal degrees. I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I started this podcast was that I wanted something where I could like dabble in whatever the hell I wanted. You know, I could do an episode on any topic I wanted and nobody would be able to tell me, oh, you don't have enough credit hours in that uh, field to be teaching that. You know, That's the beauty of podcasting, that it frees you to really do what you want, where there's nobody breathing over your shoulder telling you, yes, you can, no, you can do this. I mean, I have such an allergy by now to the level of uh, bureaucratization of academia that being able to podcast where nobody but you and there's nothing but you and your listeners. And if listeners are happy and you're happy, then no one else can have anything to say. It feels like such a nice free in the form that I love it. Yeah. Oh, academia is, it seems like it's getting worse by the year. It seems like every year there's a little bit more bullshit to make it more unpleasant than it was last year. I would uh, I would love to disagree, but I really because you're right. It's, uh, there's I find a lot more mic. I mean, I started teaching not even a million years ago. I started teaching in 2001, and I still notice that the degree of micromanaging involved has increased dramatically over the last uh, decade plus. Yeah, 
You're, you're one of those uh, people, I, I guess I'm turning into one of those people now, where you kind of have one foot in academia and still work in academia, but like increasingly your kind of heart is not in that. So, I mean, you know, still, still into actually teaching the students and interacting with the students, but that like, you know, your heart isn't in academia itself anymore as much as it used to be. And sort of like you were alluding to, you know, with the internet and everything, like the outside world is a lot more, a lot more interesting and wide open. What overall are sort of your thoughts on kind of like the pros and cons of academia as it is right now? I'm curious about that. Well, I love the interaction with students. The idea that I get paid in order to meet with people, to chat about stuff I like, and usually, you know, if you're nice and you try to find a way to make things interesting and exciting for them, most students will respond well. So more often than not, I get to have good, fun interactions with sweet, nice people talking about subjects I enjoy. So that's a blast. That I feel like such a blessing. I can't even, I feel like that's a job. Come on, that's, I won the lottery. That's too cool. At the same, so that part I still love. I I always loved, I still love that part I have zero problems with. The part I don't enjoy is everything else around. It is the culture of the people who run academia, the administrators, the even a lot of people who teach in academia are very strange creatures. And uh, <laughs> so that's the, if it's just me going to class, having to deal with my students, that part I have zero, zero problems with. I very much enjoy it. The, um, what I don't like about academia is kind of what I never like. I didn't like it when I was a student. I didn't like it at any point. Is the more often than not, there's a sense that what you're studying is completely irrelevant to the rest of your life. There's no connection between who you are once you walk out of class and the stuff that you're learning in the class. There's in many cases zero effort made to make it um, exciting, appealing uh, to. Uh, to make it come to life, it tends to be fairly dry, fairly tedious. It's all about what's on the footnote on page 568 rather than why are we doing it is what is the thing that's exciting about this topic, you know. So my feeling overall is that um, it's a great opportunity. Unfortunately, like all institutions, they tend to be, you know, institutions are never the place where you find innovation or you find revolutionary thinking or you find they are self-sustaining things that keep repeating the same model over and over. And the average tend to be very low. Having said that, though, there are, they still allow for spaces where you are relatively unsupervised. As long as nobody's complaining, you can have fair degree of freedom with what you teach and how you tackle it. And if students are happy and you're happy, then hey, that's a win right there. So that's the that to me has always been the great stuff and everything else has always been the stuff that I don't want to deal with. Holy cow. Everything you just said there sounds literally like exactly what I would say, only with a cool Italian accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. That's probably why I like your podcast. I remember listening to your episodes and I was like, yeah, I, I think that counts. I like how he's jumping from topic to topic, going for the interesting stuff, making it relevant. You know, I, that's why I enjoyed it. Oh, cool. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, why do you think, I, I mean, is it just because of the way that it's taught in, in you know, institutional settings or or what? Why do you think so many people 
when you tell them that you teach history, I'm sure you get this response. I know I do. You tell people that you teach history and usually their response to that is some like conversation murdering awkward thing like, <laughs> oh, man, I hated history right. or, you know, my history teacher sucked or, you know, and what what am I supposed to say to that? Like, on behalf of the entire profession, let me personally, uh, you know, yeah. apologize to you. I mean. Um, why do you think people have such a bad impression? Is it simply just the way it's taught most of the time? I think yes. I mean, there. I think there are two levels to it. One, the people teaching, and of course, you know, one guy would walk in and look, take the same curriculum and make it really exciting, and another one won't. There's really no accountability in terms of the quality of teaching. You know, people don't get hired because students like them. You know, students' feedback is the last thing taken into consideration in hiring people. So that clearly, you know, if that's not one of the goals, if that's not one of the important points, of course, that's not going to be reflected in, uh, in, you know, I have zero, if somebody teaches better than somebody else, they should have the job. The problem is that most of the time the jobs are not decided on that. They are more on paper. They are, you know, this person graduated from Cornell University, then we need him because he looks cool on paper, you know. So there's that problem. And then also I think there's, uh, as schools Particularly, this is even truer for high school than it is for college, but there's that fear of being overly controversial. There's that fear to get sued. There's that fear that institutions have that, you know, we don't want to play it safe. And by definition, all the stuff that get people excited is the controversial stuff, is the Game of Thrones approach to history and the blood and the gore and the sex and the crazy controversial political issues and all of those are the things that keep people awake if you just turn it into so and so became president in uh, 1868 and then they instituted this economic policy if you just put it in that fashion you kill people with boredom and that's what happens where a lot of people feel that history become this um, mnemonic game where it's just you're supposed to memorize names and dates that really mean nothing to you and that you're going to forget them the second you take an exam. So what's the point? And I can't disagree with them because when history is taught that way, it is painful and it is boring. And uh, that's why I think it leaves a very easy opening for people to instead teach it in a different way, for historical podcasting, for taking history and popularizing it, which does not mean diluting the quality it means highlighting the good stuff it means communicating it in a way that make people care without diluting the quality i think there's such a big opening for doing that because not that many people do it that it's uh, like sometimes i feel when i just do a decent job i'm not doing great i feel like yeah that day was okay i wasn't doing and people are still all excited and that's just because the bar is set so low that it really doesn't <laughs> take much to be above it yeah, yeah. Every, everybody else sucks so bad. If you're just reasonably okay and don't make them want to like just you know kill themselves, that's great. Exactly. <laughs> that's a it's a tragedy. And I'll tell you something I've encountered, and I don't I don't know if you have as well. Is I've actually encountered students who I guess have been so habituated to the boring, boring, dry version of history mm -hmm. that when they get into my class and I'm, and I'm trying to, you know, get into all this controversy and, um, you know, talk about, you know, sort of some of the things Thaddeus Russell might, might talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm not as much of an expert on all that stuff as he is, but you know, that kind of like pop culture -y stuff and, 
you know, talking about what criminals and quote unquote, you know, scurvy, uh, scumbaggy type of individuals, as most people would think, you know, how, how the people in the gutter lived and all that sort of stuff. Students, I've, I've had a few, not most, most students like that stuff, but I've had a few students where it's like, they're kind of pissed off by that. They're like, wait a minute, aren't you just supposed to be talking about, you know, who was, who was president each year and, uh, have you ever encountered students who who are that way, who who actually are so habituated to the boring way that they want it to be that way? No, I think I got lucky there. I think I and then really that's a matter of uh, it's a lottery, right? Because you never know who's going to walk into your class. For the most part, yeah. I got lucky. I haven't had that. I ran into students who are so starved for anything that doesn't put them to sleep that uh, they are gladly take anything I throw at them. But I'm sure that I also got luck in there, that it's not that every school, every semester is like that. And I mean, I'm glad that it's few students from what you tell me that it doesn't happen to you a lot. But still, I'm sure that when it happens, it must be a little, come on, man, I'm trying to deliver something that finally brings a little life to this field. Yeah, yeah. And and they don't quite get that I'm, I'm actually shooting for almost some sort of art, you know. Um, they see it as, and again, you know, this is this is a small number of students I've had over the years, but they see it as you're supposed to just download the data into my brain <laughs> so that then on the test I can regurgitate the data. And it's because they've been trained that way by teachers throughout, you know, middle school and high school who did that, who, you know, would just have the boring PowerPoint outlines and, you know, would just stick to that and didn't know anything that wasn't in the teacher's edition of the textbook. Right, you yeah, know, that's painful. That that would really spoil the fun right there. I'm curious, what are some of like the topics and and subject matter in history that are some of your personal favorites? I tend to enjoy uh let's see, uh, tend to well one thing I dedicate a lot of attention to I teach much of it is um, American Indian history. I tend to teach a lot of the Native American stuff. Mm-hmm. I what else? I do teach a history of religions, which I enjoy just because people get so heated when talking about <laughs> religion and looking at. So it, that's always fun. Rare that people feel bored about stuff like that because they are more personally involved. Right. That I really like it all. I want to switch gears and, and, and talk a little bit more about Taoism since I've got you on. I recently listened to your Taoist lecture series. Loved it, by the way. Highly recommend it um, to anyone with even the slightest interest in this stuff. And and I'll definitely link to it in the show notes for this episode. You know, a lot of, lot of things I'd, I'd like to ask you having to do with all that. One of the things, you know, I've done basically one episode of this show on Taoism, and I've mentioned it in passing in a few other places. But one of the things I had to wrangle with when I was talking about Taoism on my podcast is – Right off the bat, the difficulty of putting Taoism into words, right? I mean, the very first lines of Lao Tzu basically say that, right? That if you can say it, it's not the real Tao. So how do you deal with that? You managed to put together, what is it, like about seven hours on Taoism. That's a lot of talking for something that you're not supposed to talk about, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can't talk about Fight Club. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's, uh, I think that's what makes it interesting that it's a paradox in a way. It's, uh, you have to, you can't really explain it in a way that you would explain, uh, how to put together a table from Ikea or something, but you have to 
it's more of a poetic style of communication where you are alluding to things rather than just breaking them down from this is A, this is B, this is C. And uh, I, I remember when I first started reading about Taoism, I tried to read the Tao Te Ching when I was uh, pretty young, and I probably had a bad translation and I just could not get into it at all. And then when I started reading people like Alan Watts who could, uh, with disability, to communicate, to touch on these things that are so hard to explain and without uh, trivializing them, without watering them down, yet conveying some of the essence of it all. And so I started realizing how that game can be played, where there is something, there's a great uh, Chuanzu line that says, where can I find a man who has forgotten words so that I can have a word with him? Which mm-hmm. obviously is a joke, but at the same time, there's a point there. It's like, as long as we understand that language is limited, that uh, the reality of life is more complicated than any verbal abstraction can capture, as long as we're clear on that, okay, let's use words then, because we're human and that's what we do. And, and we'll try to come as close to it as possible while remembering that life is always deeper, more complex than uh, any word can convey. Yeah, and you know, that makes me think of something we were just talking a moment ago, some of the limitations of academia. I think part of the problem with academia is that they get lost in the words. Absolutely. You know, it's sort of like people who think that the, I can't remember if this was a metaphor you used or if I heard it someplace else, the, the idea of the map becoming more important than the actual land. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's, I think one that I use sometime, I may have used it in the lecture series, is the idea that people will, uh, reading a menu does not fill your stomach. It gives you the idea. It gives you the idea of what's out there and what the choices are, but that's not it. You know, the experience of eating food does not come from you reading what the restaurant uh, serves. And to me, that's where a lot of academic culture, a lot of intellectual culture in general tend to get lost. Rather than using intellectual faculties and thinking and reading to make the rest of life better, it becomes its own separate field from the rest of life where you get lost in these abstractions that then no longer have an impact on real three-dimensional life, real interactions with people, real everything else. For you, uh, what came first, getting into martial arts or getting into Taoism? Did, did one come before the other or did you discover both at the same time or how, how did that work for you? I think I started out reading first. I was I started getting into Zen Buddhism and Taoism before I took the physical plunge and I think I was more of a nerdy intellectual that way and eventually I started realizing that this is not, you know, I need more to my life. I'm reading is all great and fine but there's more to it. And that's when I started trying to move martial art in a more physical dimension. And I think at first, the way I approached martial art was very romanticized. I had, I think I watched too many Kung Fu movies about how it's supposed to be and this very philosophical, semi-mystical approach. These days, I'm becoming more and more of a barbarian with <laughs> that goes by. So now I'm like, when people start waxing too poetically i'm like that's great and all but can we go back to wrestling please because you know i want to sweat i want to throw people i want to get thrown I'm, this is so i it's precisely because i value the philosophical insights that i think that turning them into their own in, into making them too abstract is not giving them honor you know you 
Martial art is something that you are supposed to embody. And then, sure, there can be words to convey those feelings, but ultimately it's an experience. It's something that, uh, you know, you sweat. It's something that you feel in your muscle. It's something that cleans you from uh, excess uh, over-intellectualization. That's interesting that that you actually – that's probably the reverse way. You know, most people that are into Taoism and, and Zen and all those sorts of things and martial arts – most people probably would have done the other way, would have gone into martial arts first from the notion of, oh, I want to know how to kick ass, and maybe then later started to you know, pick up Lao Tzu or something like that. And that's the typical parable where you start with, I want to be tough, I want to, you know, that kind of thing, and then you start saying, oh, it's not really about that, it's about this deeper dimension and the philosophy and this and I started out all starry-eyed about the philosophy and Zen and Tao, and now I'm just like, ah, shut up, let's just fight. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I was actually, um, I was into, and never, never, you know, got particularly expert or anything like that, but I, I dabbled a little bit in judo and jujitsu when I was a teenager, and then kind of drifted away from that, and I discovered this sort of, you know, Eastern philosophy. Actually, when I when I hadn't been doing martial arts for a while, and what really connected it for me was actually playing the guitar. Nice. And when I started to read, you know, some Zen and Taoist books and things like that, um, I I realized the connections to to playing guitar. You know, that all the things they were saying uh, could potentially apply to anything wherein you're you're cultivating skill. Yeah, that's something even I remember you quoted it at some point when you brought up uh, Miyamoto Musashi, where there's that idea of, uh, you know, when you master, I think I forget the exact wording, but Musashi thing is when you master the art of a sword, you basically can go out and master anything else because the principle of any art are related. The way you learn that kind of Zen quality of mastery, of flow, of uh, figuring out how to that applies to everything, whether you are doing archery, whether you're learning how to cook, whether you're learning how to play guitar, whether it's all intimately related. And uh, and that's another thing that I really dug about this uh, Zen slash Taoist view, this idea of using different form of art. And I use the word art very loosely, by the way, but different forms of art to uh, embody some more some deeper truths about life, that those are just the physical manifestations of something that you're learning. That's a principle. It's bigger than a technique. It's bigger than just uh, the technical ability to get something done. It's a principle. It's an approach to life, which ultimately is what uh, Jigoro Kano, the creator of Judo, was all about. You know, he created Judo after reading the Tao Te Ching, and he was kind of dissatisfied with the excessive emphasis on technique in traditional Jiu-Jitsu schools, and then he started adapting to uh, with a Taoist vibe to it to the Japanese contest of the late 1800s, and it was a stroke of genius. That was just great stuff. Yeah, one of my favorite Taoist stories, and it's one that you also had uh, in your Taoist lecture series, is the one from Chuangzu about the butcher cutting up the ox. Yep, that's a great one. I love that one where where he's you know. I, I'm beyond technique now. Yep. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that you can really communicate. You know, you can teach technique to somebody and they'll get reasonably good at what they are doing through technique. But then that degree of mastery is something that cannot be taught. It's, uh, it's kind of like 
anybody who has been around somebody who's uh, good at cooking, you know, when you ask for recipes, they'll give you something and, you know, the recipe saves you from screwing up too bad. So you'll cook something that's going to be edible. It's all right. But to really become good, it's never a recipe. It's all about that that chef knows to be able to know exactly when to add something or take something off or lower the heat. And it's not something that's like at two minutes, at 37 seconds, you're going to do that. You know, it's it responds to the situation. It's an ability to read the situation and adapt to it, which is obviously really, really difficult. Yeah, that spontaneity where where you understand the principles, but you also understand when they don't apply or when they need to be bent a little bit or whatever. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between uh, when you go to a city and you're trying to navigate your way through an unfamiliar city and you're relying on, on your cell phone or a map or whatever, and you're looking at the map and going, oh, okay, this is the most direct route or, or the voice on your cell phone is telling you, turn left here. Where somebody who lives there and commutes there all the time might know that the route that on the map is the shortest and most direct might be the one that has the worst traffic exactly. or might be the one that's got some problem you don't know about. Um, and, and then, you know, they're the ones that know how to get around. You know, the cab drivers in that city will know where to go. Exactly. It's like, oh, when it rains, that same uh, street that's always great it becomes terrible. So take the other, you know, yeah, it's that ability to think on your feet that only comes through experience, but not even only, I mean, experience is a prerequisite, but then also it's a skill that some people will never develop no matter how much experience they get. Yeah. That, that three-step model that the, um, the Taoists talk about and that you find in like the, the manuals of some of the old samurai schools and so on, the three-step model of where you, you learn the principle and then you, get good at good at the skills and the principle and then you get to the last level where you've kind of transcended it and gone back to being a beginner but a beginner that has all the all the skills and knowledge too yeah because that's you know if you try to you know when we we're talking about academia earlier if you propose that model of knowledge it would drive people crazy because the whole model that we're used to is there's the basic level there's ignorance when you don't know something and then you accumulate knowledge and you accumulate more and more and more and more and you become an expert. The Taoist attitude is that becoming the expert is a stepping stone to a greater degree of understanding and knowledge, which is when suddenly you shed the excess baggage that you have accumulated, the, the having spent too much time reading every last footnote, having because that language Yes, you are an expert, but by then you can only communicate with other experts because you have lost that spontaneity that came when you didn't know anything, where you were kind of wide-eyed and open to possibilities. The Taoist idea is combine the degree of uh, expertise that one developed through experience with that beginner's mind, with that ability to uh, connect things that the expert, where the expert may not see connections, where that ability to uh, be open to new possibilities, which usually people who become experts in one field lose that skill. They become too dogmatic. They become too in the way things have been done. And combining those two talents to me is what real master is all about. One of the things that you talked about in your Taoist lectures that I had never really thought about, I guess, sort of consciously was the whole notion of elitism and that Taoism is is in a way a very elitist philosophy that it's not trying to proselytize the masses or anything like that. I I'd never really thought about that before, and it's funny how much that goes against the 
extreme egalitarianism that you see so much of today. You know, everybody is as good as everybody else and all that sort of thing. And then the Taoists are kind of saying, well, you know, we've got this, in a way, kind of esoteric way of understanding the world and, and, and way of cultivating yourself. Um, could you talk a little bit about this, uh, this elitism and sort of your take on it? Yeah, because I think the extreme egalitarianism they were used to, is there's a good reason for it, because traditionally there have been so many cases where elites have squashed the rights of everybody else. Where So, of course, there's the idea that everybody should have their same rights and privileges. Sure. And that's great. And that's absolutely, I agree 100%. And I think Taoists would agree too. But the point is, after we say that, sure, everybody should have the same rights and privileges, there's also the fact that no matter what, on paper, what kind of rights one have, some people are going to be able to employ those rights much better than others. Not everybody possesses the same degree of talent. Part of it may be by nature, part of it may be by experience. Who knows what it is, how much is nature, nurture, what it is. But the end result is, you know, nobody, you're not going to, not everybody's going to play basketball like Michael Jordan, no matter how many hours they put in or how many opportunities they have in that department. The Taoists view it as, uh, the same applies to everything else. Some people have the skill to be able to get it, and others don't. And whereas most religions and most philosophies tend to try to dumb it down in a, here is the system of how you go from point A to point B, we are going to take you there, you need to become a member. The Taoist approach is, hey, if you don't get it, you don't get it, that's fine. You know, that's you don't have to get it. Life continues on, whether you understand it or not, whether you want to be part of this or not. And in some way, there's that almost uh, slightly snob thing where, you know, if you don't get the ways of the Tao, that's fine. There's always Confucianism for you. <laughs> They'll give you some simple rules to live by that prevent you from screwing up too badly. Just go do your thing. No problem. But the idea is people who have that extra talent then should be able to go a step beyond that. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. That that whole concept of um, you know, hey, uh, if it's okay if you don't get it, here's some mindless rituals that you can just sort of conform to and ape and whatever. Right. And and I I've I've been someone who I don't know as long as I can remember I've always looked down on you know those sorts of like traditional beliefs and just going through the rituals and all that stuff. And uh, when when you talked about that, it, it made me think like, well, I guess those things serve a purpose in a way. They do something useful. Yeah, I mean, if um, if somebody, let's say, if somebody has some really bad uh, stuff going on, they could be the potential uh, serial killer, wannabe dictator, that kind of stuff. And through a simple, very basic kind of morality, you just teach them that probably you, you sort of squash that instinct and instead you just make them be, you know, help an old lady cross the street and be nicer to somebody else. That's great. You know, they don't have to become the greatest genius the world has ever known. As long as they are better than what they would have been, that's cool. That's cool in itself. Not everybody needs to see the world the exact same way. I mean, the way I see it, is even like when I teach about religions, to me, I don't really care what people do or do not believe. I don't need to agree with you. But as long as if your religion helps you be nicer to your neighbor, I'm totally fine with it, even though I may completely disagree with the theology. Vice versa, if your religion makes you want to chop people's head off in the name of the one true God, I don't care what your theology is. It can be the greatest idea on earth, but it's still the result is still awful. 
So I'm interested in results more than uh, abstract philosophy. The way uh, it's pointless to me for me to argue about concepts in an abstract way. I'm interested in do those concepts help your life? Do they help you become a kinder person? Great. You know, you don't have to be super smart. If you are kind, that's great. I, I'll take that any day. Yeah. Have you ever heard uh, Patton Oswalt's stand-up bit about uh, sky cake? No, I have not. Okay. Yeah. Maybe look. Maybe look it up sometime. It's probably on YouTube or someplace. Uh, Patton Oswalt's sky cake, and he actually has a take on religion that's kind of similar to what you were saying. Uh, basically, his his theory, and of course, the way he tells it is way funnier than I do, but. Um, his his theory is that religion was invented by people to convince uh big psychotic you know tough strong barbarians uh to give them a reason to like not kill and rape all day long <laughs> right to to tell them that when they die if they've been good they go up into the sky and they get to eat all the cake they want right and uh, again you know do i need to believe that i don't care if it makes you being a nicer person if it makes the next you know as long as it creates that result, it's fine by me. I think sometimes the hardcore atheist approach of, no, I need to bash on the head with proving how stupid your beliefs are, is counterproductive because A, you don't really convince anybody and B, you just make them angry. And ultimately, you miss the fact that maybe it's good for them. Maybe for that particular person, those beliefs actually help their life and help them be nicer to other human beings. So so what's wrong with that? Just why not let them have them? If... Uh, the point is, is the result. If that's the result, great. If on the other hand, their beliefs make them more intolerant and more likely to squash somebody else's freedom, well, then we have a problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that very much. I mean, I, I'd rather have neighbors who believe in some whacked out crap, but, you know, are nice people and, and don't bother me than neighbors who believe the same stuff as me, but are total assholes. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly my point. It's like, I don't care what you believe. I don't need to care. I don't need to <laughs> It's, uh, but if we treat each other nicely, good enough by me. I, I wanted to ask you, I've, I've read a fair amount of Taoism over the years, but less of Zen. I'm curious to, to hear your take on like, what really is the relationship between Tao and Zen? Are they, is, is Zen pretty much just Taoism with a little bit of Buddhist veneer on top of it? Or are there some substantive differences? Or what's your take? That's my feeling, that uh, what happened is that when uh, Buddhism was exported into China, there were different variations of Buddhism emerged in China. And the one that was the most uh, mixed with Taoism is what became uh, Chan in China, which was then turned into, they call it Zen in Japan. But ultimately, yes, yeah, Zen is a mix of uh, Taoism and Buddhism, where the Taoist elements are huge. In fact, some people do consider it, uh, you know, this is just Taoism with a couple of Buddhist references to it. And, you know, there's, there's some truth to that, for sure. Actually, there's a lot of truth to that. I think that may vary also by which Zen teacher, which kind, you know, there's obviously variations about it. But generally speaking, I don't really separate the two too much. I see them on variations on the same stuff, more or less. One of the things that I really like about Taoism is the whole concept of balance. It seems like the world is always going one crazy extreme or the other on, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, right? And um, in particular, I, I really like the Taoist take on force, on, on violence. Mm -hmm. The notion that it's to be avoided as much as possible. It's to be minimized. Mm -hmm. 
when it's used, it should be used, you know, the minimum amount to accomplish whatever goal, uh, but that you should know how to, how to use it, that you shouldn't completely throw it out. What's, what's sort of uh, your, your take on that, you know, kind of historically and, and applied to the world and all that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a very sensible approach that's non-dogmatic. Like, even though, sure, it's better not to use violence and that's not desirable, the Taoist idea is use whatever means is appropriate for that situation. In most situations, the use of violence is bad. It's bad because uh, the short-term results will be bad. It's bad because sometimes the short-term results will be good, but the long-term ones will be bad. So most situations, they would frown upon it. But most situations are not all situations. There's the case when, you know, when some, it's nice to try to reason with people and talk. But when somebody's swinging an axe for your head, the time for reason and talk is long gone. At that point, you need to react and you may need to react in a very violent fashion to put down that threat. So the Taoist thing is whatever delivers the greatest result for the present situation is what you use. And some means are better than others most of the time, but it does not mean that they are always the best one in every single scenario. So to me, this is classic of Taoism in everything. Like in many ways, politically speaking, Taoism will be fairly libertarian because you have this idea of as little government intervention, as few rules as humanly possible. And that's true in most cases. But then even the Taoist thing would be like, as little as humanly possible doesn't mean nothing. You know, there will be the time when maybe it is useful in that particular case to use it. Not in that other one, not in that other one, not overdo it, don't do too much. But is whatever, it's kind of like even when they talk about martial arts and they emphasize this idea of using yin energy, using yielding energy, not using this aggressive muscular approach. If one watches judo, you know, if you read the philosophy, you think that these guys are moving all Tai Chi-like and deflecting everything. And then you watch judo players go and they are just grunting, sweating, pulling. They are physically strong. You're like, wait, what happened to Taoism? Well, some of it is not that you're not supposed to use force. It's that you're supposed to use as little force as the situation calls for. And in some cases, it's still a lot of force because the other guy is using their energy very well. And so it's not just enough to use pure technique, but you do need to add muscle to it. The point that Taoists make is it's very easy to overdo it. It's very easy to overdo it about government. It's very easy to overdo it about violence. It's very easy to overdo it about a lot of things. So they tend to put the emphasis on, remember, as little as humanly possible. But, but it's not dogmatic. It's not saying never. It's not saying it's saying hey, when you need it, you need it. Uh, hopefully, it's not often. Hopefully, it's not uh, you don't get caught and start running too far with it. But um, but is whatever is needed to address that situation in the best possible way. Yeah, and there are, there are all those Taoist sayings about trying to take care of problems while they're still small. Yep. You know, and and how often could the need for for genuine force be prevented in the first place by just a little bit of foresight, you know, taking care of a problem when it's still a tiny seed. Absolutely. That's uh, that's why you see people who seem to never get into conflicts. And it's like you think, oh, they are lucky. These, these things just don't happen to them. And it may not be that they don't happen. It's that they make the right choice in a situation where that deflates the situation, where you never even get to the boiling point. So you never get to see them. 
when they have to deal with the big drama because uh, they they are skillful enough to manipulate the reality in such a way that it never gets there. Does it drive you crazy? I know it drives me crazy. As someone who's studied Taoism and someone who's also studied a lot of history, does history sometimes just drive you nuts watching how much people are acting in very non-Taoist ways and then, for lack of a better term, fucking everything up? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. Uh, you never lose money by gambling on human stupidity. That's just a given. It's like, and also the problem is that we often sink to the minimum common denominator. So you're trying to do things a certain way that seem to be much healthier. But then when the other guys start playing a rougher, meaner game, it's like, well, then gloves come off. Forget it. I'm not going to have to do the same in order to be able to. So it tends to happen a lot. I mean, a lot of human history is a record of uh, stupid decisions over stupid decisions repeated over and over and over again. And and I think that goes back to that Taoist elitism of not everybody gets it. Not everybody figure out how we can live life in a way that's healthier for everybody, where everybody can actually get better. It's not just purely this competition on this zero-sum game where I need to squash you in order to get what I want. There are ways not to do that, but obviously they are a little harder to grasp and a little harder to, it's easy for anybody to sort of caveman style go, you have what I want. If I just clap you on the head and steal it, then my life will be better. And there's an immediacy to that. I mean, it does work on very short term on some level, but it also plants the seeds of its own destruction as somebody else then will do it with you and you just never get out of that cycle. Yeah, and for some reason, it seems like the people who find their find their way into positions of power throughout history, they're always the people who seem to have the least grasp of all these concepts. Absolutely, it's. Um, I remember, I think it was a Dan Carlin idea where he was talking about how people running for office should not be the people who want to run for office. There should be like a popular petition saying, "Hey, this guy is just damn smart. They should that should be the person." Because typically, the people who want power are the last ones you want to give power to because they want it for ego reasons. They they don't want it because they are really actually going to help anybody. Whereas the ones who are would be hesitant because they see all the million problems of playing that power game would actually be the ones that probably you want to trust with power. Yeah, and we all you know were told that one of the reasons human beings switched from monarchy to you know democratic republics is so that we could make sure that we keep you know that we get good leaders all the time that we don't get leaders who are stupid or or you know downright evil or what have you and. You know, looking at the last few hundred years of history, I'm not so sure that the improvement has been yeah, <laughs> has been really much to write home about. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, of course, is there potential for things to go horribly wrong in a monarchy? Yeah, and it has uh, over and over again. But but one thing that people forget is that hey, occasionally there is also the potential for things to go right. Right? I mean, I take uh, the enlightened monarch uh, any day over some horrendously stupid democratic form of government. Now, most of the time, is that the way it's going to play out? Most of the time, no. But can it happen? Sure. So, to me, it's not the kind of government; it's the quality of government. If uh, you know, just to pick, since we just mentioned Dan Carlin, and I really like his uh, style, I really like the way he views the world, the way he thinks about things. If somebody was to make uh, Dan Carlin the enlightened king, I think honestly things would be a lot easier than they are now. 
Uh, do I think that that system is better? No, it's better when the right person has it. Another one is that it's always, uh, we often think in such abstract terms, like one system is clearly so much better than the other, that is always going to be better in every single context. You know, even the best system is going to work a good chunk of the time. And then there are going to be situations where like, that was a really bad idea. Maybe that time we should not have had this system in place. So you've, Pretty recently, I guess just a few months ago, started a history podcast. You, you've had uh, the Drunken Taoist podcast you've had for, what, a couple of years now? Yeah, it's been – Drunken Taoist has actually been three. I'm entering year number four right now. And yeah, the, the new one, History on Fire, is just two or three months old. It's very, very recent. Drunken Taoist, I would describe that podcast as conversations with – all sorts of diverse, interesting people. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. There is no single theme. It's uh, whatever happens to be interesting at that moment, that's where we go. So we can talk about uh, sex in one podcast, and the next one is about uh, stoic philosophy, and the next one is about, you know, there really is no barrier there. Is The range of guests, the range of topics is all over the place. Uh, and that, I think, is what I enjoy about it, is the possibility to explore in every direction I feel like exploring. But your new podcast, History on Fire, very different style. It's basically solo narrations, kind of more along the lines of Dan Carlin. Yeah. Can you tell us how and why you started that podcast, History on Fire? Well, after I started uh, first being a guest on a bunch of podcasts, then starting my own with Drunken Taoist. So I started getting involved a lot with the podcasting world. And then I started putting two and two together, realizing, well, I like podcasting. I'm enjoying this medium. I teach history for a living. How about I put two and two together and create a historical podcast? And especially, you know, I definitely listened to Dan Carlin work early on and I really liked it. I thought he was brilliant. And I was like, that's part of the reason why I like it is because that's sort of the style in which I lecture anyway. Those are the, of course, it's diff, you know, he has his flair, I have mine, it's different stuff, but there's, a, there are some common themes there. So it's like, I have a model for something that works very well as a historical podcast. And I have a model that is something that I, that resonate with what I already do. I already podcast. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to start putting all the elements together and say, maybe I should go down that route. Maybe it would be fun. Now there finally will be a reason for the three zillion history books I've read that were not really pertinent to the particular history I teach in college. And, um, and it took a long, I mean, I started working on history on fire probably two years ago because, um, what I was doing with that is that, um, I had to do a mountain of research in order to, uh, even topics that I thought I knew, once I dig a little deeper, I realize, sure, I could tell a cool story about it, but there's so much more than what I thought I knew. And I mean, some of it is perfectionism, and I probably don't need to do as much research as I am, but some of it, I also enjoyed it, and I thought it was fun, and it added layers to it. So I just started researching on my free time. So I would have a few episodes where I would have the entire research ready and ready to go. And before I release episode one, because I did not want to end up in a Dan Carlin dilemma where I release an episode and then I release the next one eight months later yeah. because I have to read all these three zillion books in the meantime. So I have maybe eight, nine episodes ready in terms of research. I just have to record them. And I figured that will buy me some time to do a little more research at the same time. I mean, eventually it will catch up with me, but 
I'll worry about it when it gets there. In the meantime, I still have, uh, I still have a gap between what I'm releasing and what I'm researching that allows me to release on a fairly regular schedule. Can you give us any previews of upcoming topics or are you going to go to the Dan Carlin route and play it very close to the vest? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he does that. Maybe there's a really good reason that I'm missing right now for why I keep it a secret, but no, I have no problem talking about it. The ones that I'm planning next, let's see. So I did the Slave Wars in episode one and two in ancient Rome. I'll do one about uh, this. This is more of an archaeological story, the case of the Iceman. This guy was found in the mountains of Italy and his body was perfectly preserved from 5,000 years ago. And so this gave a whole window of what life 5,000 years ago was like. And it's, it's a pretty exciting story. So I'll, I'll dedicate one episode to that. I'll do one episode about the shootout between uh, um, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. That's nothing like a good gunfight among the top <laughs> politicians of the day to make it interesting. Uh, I'll do one about uh, the 10,000, the Xenophon's Persian expedition. That's a fairly wild tale. And, um, you know, it's a, one of the great adventure tales in human history. That's a pretty fun one. Then I want to dedicate three episodes to uh, all related topics. They are going to be all about the conflict between the United States and the Lakota people. So I'll do one is a biography of Crazy Horse, and then I'll do two episodes on Little Big Horn. Kind of one is just the battle, and one is all the lead up to it. Uh, and then episode nine that I'm working on right now, I'm finishing the research, will be about uh, the Italian painter Caravaggio, who has a crazy wild life. You know, he was painting the greatest masterpieces of the Renaissance, and at the same time, he was getting into sword fights in taverns, and it's, it's pretty, you know, he's almost the archetypal bad boy genius of the Renaissance, and it's uh, it's certainly not a boring tale. That all sounds like awesome stuff. I'm really looking forward to all of that. Yeah, I had the same thing, like, a lot of the topics you pick, I'm always like, oh man, I was thinking exactly that, that's great, that's one that I want to touch on too. There are so many of the topics you are picking for your podcast where I'm like, I love that one, or even some weird, unlikely ones. I mean, I remember you did one about the million dialogue in uh, Thucydides, and you yeah. know, how many people really think about the meal? It's not exactly the stuff that everybody discusses. And I wa it was right in my notes. I'm like, oh, man, it would be great. A short <laughs> podcast on just on that topic. The, so I, I think we share a lot of the same uh, flavor for this kind of stuff. We probably like the same things. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like we, we both have the uh, the affinity for jumping around as far as time period yep. and topic and all that stuff. I mean, that's one of the things that I, I absolutely loved ever since I started my podcast is that like – one day I can be talking about the Bronze Age, and the very next day I can be talking about something that happened in the Cold War, and like it's totally cool. There's nobody there to say, hey, you're not sticking to the course outline. <laughs> That's the beautiful aspect about the freedom of podcasting. So um, your your first two episodes, you know, other than episode zero, the kind sure. of, hey, I'm starting a podcast episode, um, episodes one and two of History on Fire on the Slave Wars – what made you pick that topic? I mean, it's, it's a very interesting topic. I, I enjoy the episodes a lot, but um, that seems like like not the most obvious choice, maybe. Uh, I'm interested to hear kind of your thinking, your train of thought to choose that for your opening salvo. Uh, that's actually a very good question. I'm not sure that I do have an answer in the sense that I'm not sure it was so well thought. There must have been a reason there at some point, but it probably got buried under. Because realistically, I could have started with a lot of other topics. I guess one theme that came to mind when I was 
tossing around uh, 8 to 10 where I felt most prepared already and I had a bunch of research done already. I remember that on one of the very first times I was on the Jerogan podcast, uh, I forgot if he asked or I brought it up, but I mentioned this sort of dramatic scene of the end of the Spartacus Rebellion where the Romans crucified some 6,000 of Spartacus followers all along the road between Naples and Rome. And I mentioned it to Joe, and he was so freaked out and sort of stunned by that image that I guess he had never heard about. He had never seen the Kirk Douglas movie? Yeah, I guess not, or who knows. But the, Or maybe he thought it was a movie and there was no reality. Who knows? But the, then when I thought about starting a podcast, I felt it was a fitting homage since a lot of, I mean, realistically, a lot of what I've been able to do with podcasting has been thanks to Joe Rogan because had it not been for some of the exposure that he gave me, it would have been a lot harder to get certain stuff done. So when I had to pick, uh, you know, which one do I want to go with, I felt like, ah, episode one is a, is a powerful story, is intense, it has a lot of the elements that I want to play with, and plus there's this uh, Rogan connection, which is really the only reason why I ended up in podcasting to begin with. So I felt it was a, a fitting uh, homage for Rogan. So did he initially have you on his show just because of of your written work yeah. or your your martial arts? Uh... Yeah, it was uh, it was because of books, and I mean even that was just crazy luck, right? Because I mean Joe, I'm sure he gets bombarded with three zillion requests all the time, and he probably doesn't have to reply to ninety nine point nine percent of them. So there was a huge element of luck that he must have been just in the good mood in the right moment. And when uh, Matt Staggs, a guy who was working as a publicist for the for the publisher that I had just done a book with, had emailed him and said, hey, Joe, you know, I think you can check a little, take a look at this guy because uh, he's into a lot of the similar topics that you are. He's into martial arts, but he's also into religions. He's also into... The... There were enough of weird things there together that probably caught his eye and said, huh, that's kind of weird. Okay, why not? And also, again, it must have been luck when the day when he was in a good mood and he was reading his email and all of the good stuff. So thanks to that uh, lucky sequence of events, I ended up on his podcast. And then, you know, I didn't even know how big he was or how much of an exposure. But after that, I spent three days probably just replying to people's emails who had uh, heard the podcast and and I realized, whoa, okay, there's a big wide world here with podcasting. And it's, that was really my introduction to the whole thing. I knew pretty much nothing about podcasting prior to this. Yeah, I was just a listener for a long time. And, you know, my, my story of finally coming around and taking forever to have the light bulb on my, come up over my head of, Hey, I should start a podcast. I, I kind of feel. Sort of like I'm, I'm kind of slow the way, the way you were saying before, like it took you forever to put together, Hey, I should do a podcast about history. Like same thing for me. I was listening to tons of podcasts for probably like five years or something, you know, just, just purely as a consumer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually I discovered Dan Carlin and I give him credit. He's, he's probably one of the two or three podcasts that really made me decide, Oh, what the hell I'm going to try doing this because. With him in particular, it was that somebody showed that you could actually get an audience for a history podcast if you made it interesting. Yeah, I mean, isn't that amazing? The guy, if you look at all the top podcasts in the world, they are all uh, 
this American Life, NPR, uh, TED Talks, they are all they all have a structure behind them. You know, they all have uh, some kind of a platform surrounding it. And then you see Dan Carlin, who is just him plugging the microphone in his computer, probably, and just going with it. So it's such a homemade production. And yet the quality is so high that he did manage to gain a huge following anyway. So it's inspiring that way. I completely agree with you. And I think we're so used to the traditional system of media where you are the passive consumer of media. You're never the creator. There's never even the possibility to think, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to start my TV network or tomorrow I'm going to make my own movie. You know, it doesn't really work that way. So that it probably does take a while to realize, you know what? I can actually do this. I can, you know, there's no guarantees that anybody's going to listen. I mean, hopefully my mom will listen, but that's something. And, and who said that I need a certain number in order to feel that it's legit, that is good. Let's just do it. Let's have fun with it and let's see where it goes. And if uh, some people listen, hey, 10 people listen. It's cool. It's 10 people whose, uh, whose lives you touch. Clearly, you know, we all like to have as many listeners as possible, but that also is kind of an ego game at the end of the day, because really, if you're having fun and somebody's listening, you're doing something good and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Yeah. And my experience so far has been that um, I get a lot more direct feedback for my podcast than I ever get from students in the classroom. Like a lot of times students in the classroom, at least my experience has been, they don't always want to tell you if they like it. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, it, it, I agree. And even in the best possible scenario, let's say that they do give you feedback, let's say this and that, you're still teaching how many? 40 people in a classroom. So in any given semester, you have maybe two to 300 students all in all. Uh, it's what you can do with podcasting is on such a wider scale immediately that it's uh, it's striking you know and it's also interesting because whereas in a classroom this is somewhat of a captive audience where they have to be there because they want their degree and all of that uh nobody has to has to listen to a podcast they choose to listen to a podcast they have a bunch of options and they choose to listen to yours in that moment that's an honor right there that's a great thing that um it's i don't know i feel uh privilege to be able to have that to be able to have people who decide to do it and so usually when people choose to do something they're more invested in it yeah absolutely i mean it's it's really cool when you go in and look at your stats and like it's people from all over the world you know from sometimes from countries you would have never expected <laughs> i know where you're like okay let me dig up my atlas again where are we at here you know it's yeah it's funny yeah, yeah, there's one guy in Eritrea who really, really digs what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, right? He's like, really? And you picture it. He's like, what the, how did that even come about? You know, it's, it's awesome. It's a great thing. I love it. Yeah, yeah, the people in the really kind of rustic remote countries always, uh, make me the most proud because I figure in a lot of those cases, they probably had to go through hell to get an internet connection. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, really? Some guy in Mongolia just downloaded this? Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, had to, had to ride a horse for half a day yeah. to get to Wi-Fi. And, and, and probably it's not that way, but it's like it's fun to think it that way. It's like it's always it makes it more romantic to picture some semi-nomadic dude in a felt tent who just got to a Wi-Fi connection. It's probably some guy who would just uh, you know is living in a city and isn't that. But again, I don't want to know. I like to keep my romantic fantasies. 
Yeah, it's more fun. I, I want to keep my American view of every foreigner is kind of a stereotype, like the characters on uh, Team America World <laughs> Police. You know, everybody in France is either a mime or or someone just going, "Oh, we oui, we." Oui. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that makes it. Uh, as long as people don't take it too seriously when you're having fun with those things, I think is awesome. Yeah, yeah. As long as it doesn't turn into like you know mean bigotry. Yeah, exactly, like exactly. Uh, back to the 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 Slave Rebellion podcast. Um. I kind of knew the basics of, of the story, but I, I had never delved into it in as much detail as you did there. And um, number one, I was quite disappointed to find out that the Kirk Douglas movie was not entirely historically accurate. I I expected a lot more out of Hollywood. Isn't that the way it always were? That's where you want to look for accurate histories, always Hollywood movies, because that's what it's all about. Yeah, next thing you're going to tell me is that uh, Mel Gibson movies are not always dead on accurate. I, I won't do that to you yet. Don't worry. Yeah, and, and just don't rain on my uh, love of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Oh, come on. that's that. I always bring that up. When I lecture in class, I always mention, you know, and Abraham Lincoln, when he was, and I say, yeah, I know he was busy killing vampires, but he also got around to do this and that. And of course, students crack up. And no, I mean, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer is, is a genius move. It was not exactly a very good movie, which is too bad. I would have liked an Army of Darkness kind of thing, but the right. concept I thought was hilarious. Yeah, it's one of the ones I actually have a movie poster in my office at work. Um, I had a student a couple of years ago who worked in a movie theater in town, and he um, one day I guess they were getting rid of a bunch of old movie posters, and he grabbed up a bunch of ones that were you know related to history or related to something I had talked about in class, and he brought me in. It was one of the coolest presents I ever got from a student. He brings me in this pile of you know beat up used movie posters. And uh, one of them was Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Another one was Team America World Police. Nice. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, no, that kind of stuff is brilliant. I would love it. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to look for one as well. Having an Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer poster in the office would brighten things up. Yeah, and, and it gives me a nice, you know, um, uh, conversation piece to tell students, you know, this is actually closer to the truth than the damn Steel, Steven Spielberg movie was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, man. But yeah, you know, that's Hollywood, right? It's like if you expect uh, accurate history to be in a Hollywood movie, the problem is not with Hollywood, it's with our expectations, because that's obviously not the place. But, um, you know, I dig it when uh, it's sort of historical fiction, because obviously it's fiction. But if it's kind of somewhat close to reality, that's even nicer. That's a bonus, particularly when the real stories are so cool already. And so you don't need to mess with them too much. But but ultimately, you know, the point of Hollywood is to sell tickets, make sure people watch it and they are entertained. So, of course, accuracy uh, takes a backseat to all of that. I, I've I've just got to ask, what's your feeling about the movie Three Hundred? I mean, I I enjoyed the movie tremendously. I thought it was awesome. I don't do I think that it's historically accurate, not even close. But who cares? <laughs> you know, it's one of the things where, and I think it's sometimes it's subtle things that make us like something or not like something else. I mean, I remember when the sequel to Three Hundred came out, and it's uh, I didn't dig it. There was nothing to it for me. And it's all the elements are there. It's still the same CGI and the sword fights and these and the that. But there were just a few moments of just screenwriting that in the first movie, some of the screenwriting was top notch. There were some, just some beautiful, powerful lines. And in the second, they were gone. And so it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever watched the first uh, Conan movies. 
You know, if you watch yeah. the 1982 Conan, there's epic to it. If you watch the one that they made just a few years later, probably 85, 86, something like that, with a different director, different screenwriter, it sucks. It's terrible. And it's, uh, you know, still uh, Arnold with his big muscle swinging a sword, but one, there's epic in it, and the other one, there's nothing left. So, but, you know, I get, to me, what people do like or do not like, there's such subjective aspects to the one little thing that calls to you and suddenly makes everything else turn and makes it forgivable that it's, uh, I think, it, it's interesting to hear what people like and dislike, but the reasons why people like and dislike some stuff are so different that we might as well be talking about different things. But uh, no, all in all, I actually enjoyed three other. I thought it was fun. Again, it's nothing to do with accurate history, but who cares? It was a good comic book. Yeah, I actually, for some reason, I liked the comic better than the movie. I actually read the comic years before the movie came out, and I don't know why, because the movie is actually very close to the comic. Uh-huh. But for maybe it's the old classic, you know, oh, you should have read the book. It was better, like, right. you know, that type of thing. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the movie 300 because I, I went into it expecting it because I had read the comic. I expected it to not be accurate history. I expected, ah, oh, it's just going to be a fun, you know, slash em up kind of right. lighthearted action movie, really, in a lot of ways. But I have to say, a little piece of me sort of felt like, kind of like what you were saying a few minutes ago, the actual story of the Battle of Thermopylae uh-huh. is pretty damn incredible. Yeah. And... I kind of felt disappointed that someone hasn't made a good modern film depiction of that that is just, you know, as true to the facts as possible. Because I, I think there would be a there would be a power to that that would um you know just just really hit harder than kind of a somewhat cartoonishly exaggerated you know, depiction. I agree completely. I think there are such amazing, and that's, I think, again, back to the bar is set so low that it's easy to be above it. Sometimes just telling history for what it is, you're not, uh, you're not popularizing it. You're not uh, making it exciting when it's not, you're not making stuff up, but sometimes the real story, if you don't dump it down, if you don't neuter the process, it's so powerful. It's so interesting that why I don't understand how people can screw it up. I really don't. Like, how can you take a subject that's so cool and teach it so poorly? That's one of the things that's amazing to me because there are those really amazing, powerful stories and you don't have to be an amazing storyteller to tell them, well, the power is already there. You just need not to screw it up. Yeah, you know, what? one of the most just terrible experiences I had in graduate school was I took a graduate-level history class on World War II. I was so excited. Like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to learn all this cool stuff about this war I've never heard before. I mean, I went into it with about the most positive, receptive attitude I've ever gone into a class. And I went in there, and it happened to be a professor who was just painfully boring. Painfully. And he took... How in the world can you take a class, a graduate class. So all the students are like, you know, ready to go. It's their, it's their subject. They're, they're not students who are there reluctantly. And it's on World War II for crying out loud. I mean, you know, a, a horrific event, but also like really freaking interesting. Yeah. And how on earth this guy who had, was a, you know, well paid tenured professor at a, at a major university, how the hell this guy could take World War II? And make it excruciatingly boring. I mean, it, it was like sitting through 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 a chemistry course or something like that, or physics or something. It was just 
brutal. Yeah, and that's the that's the harsh reality that boring people are gonna make anything they touch boring. That just because as ultimately a lot of teaching is the personality of the person teaching is gonna make a huge difference in how the material is portrayed, how it's presented, how it reaches you. That's why, to me, quality of uh, the people who teach, there should be a completely different screening process for it. It should be about, can you make it exciting? Can you make anybody care? Can you be accurate? Can you have all that stuff and yet be interesting to people who are not specialists in the field? Like, schools often, there's this backward uh, process where we think that students owe us their attention Students don't tell you anything. They, it's your job to be able to make sure that they pay attention. And you don't need threats. You don't need uh, anything. You just need, if you are interested, they will pay attention. They are begging to be interested in something because they don't want to sit there for an hour and a half bored to that. So it's not that they are fighting you, but you need to give them something. You know, otherwise it's, of course, you put everybody to sleep and, and really, unfortunately, you know, that's why it's, I don't know if that happened to you as well, but so many of the best history books I've ever read, they are written by journalists who have actually done the research based on some historian who did all the hard work. But then these guys can actually tell the story so much better than the average historian can. And it's sad because he figured that should be part of history. Be able to communicate the story well should be. It's not just about digging up some primary sources in some lost, obscure place. I mean, that's important. Otherwise, we have no history without it. But that's not the end of it all. Because if you dig up all the accurate information, but you cannot communicate it to another human being, we're still that's still not the point. Yeah, it seems like maybe up till 50 or 60 years ago, there was a, more of an emphasis in history on storytelling ability. Definitely. And somewhere, I want to blame it on the 60s, maybe, I just feel like doing that, but somewhere around that time, it seems like that got thrown out, and the whole idea became about history is a social science, so we need to copy what's going on in you know all these other more scientific fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That emphasis on being purely objective, which, I mean, it sure beats being biased, but that's not really the solution either, because, hey, you can never be completely objective, and be, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way, and it actually killed some of the good stuff of the field. And I'm all for, you know, you want to be accurate, you want to eliminate as much bias as possible, you want to, all of that is great, but not at the price of also throwing out the baby with the dirty water. That just defeats the purpose. Yeah, and your uh, Slave Rebellion episodes definitely did that for me. Um, and the way I can, I, I can tell that, you know, it engaged me, it interested me, was that I knew how the story was going to end. Right. But I still kind of in the back of my mind was like, come on, guys, don't lose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was still like, come on, Spartacus, right. you've won so many battles. You've got to seal this deal. You can do one. Yeah, no, I know that. It's funny. I had the same experience when, uh, when they first recommended Dan Carlin to me and I listened to the first episode and I was like, I don't know. I, I guess I had weird expectations. So I was like, oh, come on. This is not that good. It was good enough that I feel like, okay, I'll give it a second try. Sure. And suddenly I realized that it was this series of lectures on the Roman Republic. And, you know, growing up in Italy, they hammer that stuff into you forever. So, I mean, I knew the story front and backward. I knew everything that happened. I had no issue of content. And I found myself at the edge of my seat going, what happens next? And I'm like, I know what happens next, but the guy's delivering it so well. 
is such a compelling storyteller that suddenly I'm there and uh, so to me is like when we get to that place is because we are clicking with whoever is doing the is telling the stories is telling it in a way that appeals to us and that's when I realized oh my god okay now Carlin has it and I was an idiot and my first response was just completely stupid because the guy actually has a as a style that's powerful. What do you think were the reasons why the slave rebellion was crushed? Well, I mean, I think it's you you go up against overwhelming gods from the get-go because you go against a system that's already there in place to squash any threat, and you have to start from being a group of random guys who managed to steal a few swords having to go against uh, the most powerful military machine of the day, it's a miracle that Spartacus got as far as he got. But, you know, you basically have to pull off 300 miracles in a row in order to really beat them. You know, the odds are stuck so much on one side that that's why you see very few large-scale slave rebellions throughout world history, and even fewer that succeed. I mean, I can think of the Haiti example. Other than that, I can think of too many. It's just uh, so unlikely to be able to pull it off when somebody else has everything on their side. They have the troops, they have the weapons, they have the supplies, they have all of it, and you got nothing. Why do you think that they uh, they didn't try to make a run for it at that that one point in the story where you know they they had won a bunch of battles they had actually defeated multiple Roman armies and um, you know then Rome was mobilizing more resources to come at them again there was there was kind of that opportunity where some of them might have been able to get away successfully if they would have just made a run for it why do you think that they didn't do that that's one of the big mysteries that no historian can figure it out because it doesn't make sense. I mean, if they wanted to run, they could have. Now, running may have not necessarily been the solution in the sense that the Roman Empire can eventually still catch up with you. I mean, it's not an empire yet, but might as well be. But uh, but still, that was... So some historians speculated that they got too greedy, that they thought they were invincible, and they figured, okay, let's try to conquer all of Italy, we'll become the new... Maybe, but there's no proof to say that that's what happened. Some people say that there were internal fights among them and they disagreed. Some people argue that maybe the plan was to try to join Mithridates in the east, but by that point Mithridates had already lost. So there was, who knows? I mean, if they wanted to run, going about it the way they went was probably not the right way, in the sense that it would have been, uh, throughout history, people have run away from slavery successfully when they do it in very small numbers and they sort of disappear through the cracks. Setting up a big army fighting uh, the army of the state is usually not when you want to escape. But then again, what the goal was, we don't know, because we don't have a single line from the slave viewpoint. We don't know anything about what Spartacus was thinking or what his guys were thinking. We we have uh, classic histories written by the winners. We have all the sources from the other side, but it's complete speculation trying to figure out what their motives were or why they made the decisions they did. Yeah, it's one of those things that just seems so irrational that I can't help but wonder if there wasn't some sort of religious angle, you know, where for some reason they thought that they had divine support or whatever, or or maybe some soothsayer told them, oh, yeah, you, you, you can win this for real. You can. Right. Um, and, and maybe that – I mean because that to me seems like maybe the only thing that would be a powerful enough belief that would cause somebody to basically 
almost choose suicide, really. Yeah, could very well be because, yeah, their movements make no sense. You know, they're in southern Italy. They climb all the way to northern Italy. They can't get out. And instead, they turn south again. And it's like, what's going on here? Why are they doing this? Who knows? And again, that's where the real story the real story may be more exciting than the real story that we currently have. Because if we actually knew why some of that stuff happened, I'm sure something wild was going on that caused that to happen. And unfortunately, it's lost to history and we have no idea. Yeah. One thing that I can't figure out is, and and correct me if you know something I don't, but I don't know of any large-scale slave uprisings like, you know, on that level of Spartacus taking place later in the Roman Empire when the Roman state was much more uh much weaker. I mean you had the you had the uprising of the Goths right you know and, and Adrianople and all that, but as far as like a an outright slave rebellion, were there any slave rebellions that you know of that, that took place in the later empire? Because it seems like then the opportunity for maybe being successful would be a lot a lot better than when the Roman army was in its prime. Yeah you'd figure, right? Yeah no I don't actually I'm sure there were you know tiny rebellions again of the hundred guys who fight and escape type of thing, but nothing on the scale of uh, Spartacus or even a fraction of that. Um, No, that's weird. There's actually those three slave rebellions. They are basically back to back in the space of 70 years or so, and then never again in the Roman Empire. Again, after horrendous defeats, maybe there was also historical memory of it. Who knows why? But certainly, but yeah, it doesn't happen again. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder if, if uh, by then maybe the barbarian incursions were scaring the slaves. Maybe the slaves were uh, more docile and loyal to their masters out of fear of those uh, scary, hairy barbarians on the other side. That could very well be. That would not surprise me. Yeah, who knows? Well, um, it's been uh, really great, really interesting talking to you. I, I really appreciate it. And um, I wanted to just give you a chance real quick to um, – Talk about, looks like you have a, a book coming out next month. The yeah. book, uh, Not Afraid, is that the title? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a book that, um, I mean, the theme is about dealing with fear, but it's sort of the closest thing to something autobiographical that I've had in the sense that all the, whereas a lot of my earlier books were more sort of philosophical in nature with the occasional personal example, this is a lot about sort of personal life of the last five years or so, a lot of the stuff that happened in my life, some fairly heavy things. So it deals with uh, that, dealing with the harshness of life sometime. At the same time, some of the stuff that I got from martial arts in terms of dealing with fear and how then it applied from uh, the mat or the ring, how to translate that then into when life shows its unkind face. And then also sort of the afterwards, the when you decide that ultimately, you know, when that existential realization that no matter how much you want to avoid it, how much you want to play it safe, nothing is safe, that, you know, eventually nobody gets out alive. Eventually, that moment where you just say, well, that sucks. But at the same time, I don't need to be afraid all the time anymore. I don't need to be constantly fearing that something bad will happen because guess what? Something bad will happen. So what's the point of being afraid of the inevitable to some degree? Let's just go out with a bang. Let's just go have fun in the meantime. Let's just sort of enjoy the last uh, little bit out of life in the year and now. And so that's kind of what the book explores, um, all these themes through martial arts, through personal life, through life afterwards. Um, that's what it's all about. 
Well, sounds cool, and I'll I'll recommend to my listeners if they've not listened to your podcast or if they've not checked out your books that they definitely ought to do so, and I'll link to all that kind of stuff in the show notes. But um, it's been really great talking to you. It's uh, been a great conversation. I, I think my listeners are really going to dig it. So um, thanks very much for coming on. And thank you so much. And it's this is cool because you know I've recorded a lot of podcasts where I don't know what the podcast is. I don't you know I'm glad when people invite me and that's sweet and all, but I don't really know what's going on. Whereas your podcast, I've actually listened to a whole bunch of episodes. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. This is fun. We got to play together after I, you know, you know, usually as a listener, you get the experience of getting somebody's voices in your ears for long enough hours. And so to be able to actually be where we go back and forth, this is fun. All right. And I want to say thanks again very much to Daniele for sharing his time, his knowledge and his insight with us on the Dangerous History Podcast. In the show notes for this episode, of course, I'm going to link to his personal site and the sites for each of his two podcasts, and I'm also going to link to the Taoist Lecture series that we mentioned in the show, which is available for purchase on his website. And of course, the Amazon affiliate links for this episode's show notes will include Daniele's books, as well as some other related books that we mentioned during the course of the show, so I hope you'll check all that out. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether it's social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ today along with Daniele Bolelli, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.